Hey guys, Terry here. It's uh, good to be back with you here in 2019 with the Adventure Activist. If you're like me, you've been busy with some projects and adventures for the year ahead, so I'm now finding some space and letting go of some steam out here in my backyard on our public lands, enjoying a little skate ski on our community trails and catching a glimpse of the river at the moment. Uh, grateful to have this place. I know I don't need to tell you guys that in recent history, our public lands have certainly come under threat. It's hard to not feel hopeless that our voice isn't being heard in this fight to preserve our sacred spaces. But part of being a good advocate is knowing how the system works and investigating where we can affect meaningful change. And so, co-host Luke Nelson and I decided to reach out to Chase Huntley at the Wilderness Society for some insights. And that's what we're going to bring you today. Good to have you back. Hope you learn a lot. And best wishes to all for the year ahead. This moment on our public lands was brought to you by our partners at the Wilderness Society, founded by conservation giants like Aldo Leopold, Bob Marshall, and honored in the imagery of council member Ansel Adams, the Wilderness Society has had a mission protecting our public lands since 1935. In this time of unprecedented threat to the places you care about, please consider learning and offering your support at wilderness.org. from our experiences as explorers and forged by a commitment to the positive change we want to see in the world. This is the Adventure Activist Podcast. Yeah, the oil, gas, and coal that comes off of our public lands and waters contributes more than uh, one-fifth of our total national greenhouse gas footprint, meaning public lands, if they were on their own country, they'd be the fifth largest emitter in the world. Our public lands should be leading the way as part of our national climate solution, not lagging far behind and continuing to fuel the problem as if there isn't a problem. We are at an important point in this nation and we are starting a a national conversation about our public lands. This reawakening of pride in keeping public lands public is just the beginning of what I believe to be a reimagining of the role our public lands will play for our nation Welcome to the Adventure Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Terry O'Connor. This is the place for meaningful conversations with accomplished athletes, inspiring adventurers, and influential activists. Through their journeys, stories, and life discoveries, we deconstruct how our guests add more meaningful value to the world and do some good with their passion for adventure. Welcome to Episode 17, another Activist Toolkit episode for your edification a conversation on the climate of public lands policy. About a year ago, President Trump shrank two national monuments in Utah by nearly two million acres with the simple stroke of a pen. As he stood before the crowd in Salt Lake City, President Trump said he was taking power away from the, quote, very distant bureaucrats, end quote. But who was he giving power to? If the land was indeed public, why did it appear as though the public opinion was ignored? How does this public land leasing system work, and is the system equitable, or is it a fixed game? Today, activist and Patagonia ambassador Luke Nelson joins me as we ask Chase Huntley of the Wilderness Society these questions and more. We wanted to do a deep dive on how we've gotten to this place, 
and if there is any hope that we can still serve to preserve our public space. As Energy and Climate Program Director for the Wilderness Society in Washington, D.C., Chase works with the staff in the public policy and public lands departments to develop and evaluate policy options for sustainably managing energy production on the nation's public lands. Chase has significant policy analysis experience, including more than six years' service at the Government Accountability Office, that's the investigative arm of the U.S. Congress, evaluating the stewardship of public resources and the implementation of natural resource law. He holds two master's degrees from the University of Michigan with a focus on resource policy and ecosystem management and a BA from Claremont McKenna College in government and philosophy. Most importantly, he's a kind guy with a brilliant mind and was a true pleasure to connect with again. As our conversation begins, I simply ask Luke and Chase what the concept of public lands means to them. And in doing so, we learn of a stark contrast. That is, how our federal agency's view of this precious resource differs from our own and how its use came to be fixed in the energy industry's favor. Well, I, you know, as, as we've had some of conversations um, leading up to this, I think that my understanding of what public lands are has expanded somewhat. But prior to those discussions, public lands were places that I felt were set aside for public use. And m- maybe my narrow idea of that was that they were primarily for recreation and then uh, management through cattle operations and, and some uh, forestry and things like that. But not uh, from what Chase has explained um, to us at this point. <laughs> yeah. Well, Chase, maybe highlight where, I guess from our standpoint in our community, where perhaps we might be a little bit short-sighted in the big picture of really how our public lands are managed or perhaps really what the perspective from a, from a government standpoint is the resource of our public lands and how they look at it. Yeah, happy to. Um, three points I'll make. First, our public lands are vast. If you add up the total uh, amount of land acreage that the federal government manages on behalf of the American public, it equals more than 635 million acres. That's more than one quarter of the land area of the United States. Enough land to equal the land mass of California, Texas, and Alaska combined. So the the land holdings that the federal government has extend through every state. Uh, although we often think of them just as uh, found in the West. They cover just about every ecosystem type that you can think of, and uh, they stretch from terrestrial systems to aquatic systems, estuarine systems to uh, montane systems. It's an amazing varied basket of, of habitat and of heritage that includes things that we all know, like the Grand Canyon and the high and wild peaks of Montana's Glacier National Park. Uh, it includes the much-contested Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska, the Hurricane Sandy Batter Rockaway Beach in New York City, mountain sources of drinking water for Denver and Salt Lake City, uh, just to name a few. So uh, it's a range of things that we expect from our public lands, many of which we don't know. Luke's right that the main public interface with our public lands is recreation. And for that reason, you'd be forgiven for thinking that our public lands are protected just because they're public. But unfortunately, that couldn't be further from the truth for 
many lands, especially those managed by the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service, uh, which are managed for multiple uses, including, especially in the case of the BLM, energy development. And this is just a legacy of how our lands came into federal management. When the states joined the Union, all but the original 13 colonies, had to give a little uh, to become part of the Union. And as the United States grew bigger and bigger, and the populations of the states looking to join the Union, join the United States, became smaller and smaller, at least less dense. There was a lot more land. Uh, and in the transaction, uh, those states, in cases like Nevada, gave up upwards of 85% uh, of their lands to the federal government for management. And those lands, once they came into the federal government up until about the 1920s, uh, were really focused on disposal. The federal government was primed and wired by law and by culture to treat those lands as available for sale um, or for lease. The wholesale transfer of you know, fee title ownership, the actual sale of public lands, really wrapped up when the Homestead Act ceased to be a, a major driver for, for settlement, even though the Homestead Act still had claims filed to it up through the mid-century mid of the 20th century. But energy leasing and leasing for mineral and timber development uh, really kept going apace and, and exploded when energy demands of the nation uh, skyrocketed uh, around the end of World War I and really accelerated up through uh, World War II to the uh, turn of the last century. Hmm. And so essentially, this is, I guess, after the era of Manifest Destiny, after all who were working West were able to just land grab what they could please for their own homesteads, this is what was left over as the states were becoming states, and in part of joining the Union, had to give back in part and parcel, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. Um, it was it was a term of the deal to join, um, and as a result, uh, whether by design or uh, most historians, I think, believe coincidence, uh, or at least happenstance, the federal government ended up retaining rights to some absolutely astonishing tracts of land, uh, places that were not particularly hospitable for settlement in the 1800s and, and 19, uh, early 1900s, and certainly back in the 1700s. Those places were the places that tended to find their way into the federal government management. So high mountain peaks and ridgelines and deserts and high deserts. Places where people couldn't make homesteads, <laughs> for sure. Yep, not that easily, or at least hadn't gotten to yet. It sounds like we went from a period of time where we had manifest destiny, we had homesteaders, we had the Homesteader Act, then there was land left available, unused, or inhospitable for homesteading, that then these quote-unquote, territories needed to offer up to the Union to become a state. Uh, and somewhere in that process, there began this arrangement where each state or uh, a state manager had to offer up certain resources to the Union on some regular basis. And for some reason, it was perhaps mineral resources that had the historical precedent there. I think the listeners would be really interested to hear how this system developed and then how it got fixed the way it is to help us understand where our levers are to pull to try to influence and make a change as it currently stands. Fossil energy has been the preferred tenant for our public lands for a century or more. And that's enshrined in the laws and the policies that govern how our public lands are 
to be managed. About a, a century ago, Congress spoke for the first time explicitly to how energy should be developed on our public lands in the Mineral Leasing Act of 1920. And that law continues to be the principal legal anchor for how the public lands are managed onshore for energy development, even though there's been some amendments and a number of other corrections that have tried to push away from energy and you know, coal and fluid minerals as the primary purpose uh, or the, the, the most important purpose for which lands are to be managed. Um, that law is still on the books. And so we've seen the culture of the agency and the policies that oversee how agency employees are to make decisions about what to do with any given acre of public lands, uh, heavily influenced by that early statement that energy was a prime use for public lands. And the public really only had a say in how its public lands were managed starting in the mid-70s with the passage of a couple of pieces of law that started to express this idea of multiple use that uh, sure, energy is appropriate for public lands in, in many places, but it isn't the only use for which our lands are to be managed, that there are, are other uses, including recreation, including hunting and uh, fishing and grazing and, and other uses that are to be treated on par by the agency staff when they're making their plans for how to manage a big area. In the 40 years since that law passed, a lot's happened at the agency, and non-energy uses continue to rise up in prominence uh, with the agency's staff being given new direction, with new organizational structures at the Bureau of Land Management that reflect the changing expectations for what to do on our public lands. Uh, for example, the you know the creation of a staff that works on recreation and backcountry issues. And... You know, the, the agency has, has struggled to keep pace with the expectations the American public has, but has been trending in the right direction. Um, it's just had such a deep hole to climb out of in terms of the rules and favorable regulations that the oil and gas and coal industries had written for themselves that it's it's taken a long time to, to unpack and to to level out the playing field. Even the heroic efforts of the Clinton and Obama administrations were not able, though, to put recreation or renewable energy on equal footing with fossil energy. Fossil energy still had the upper hand in the form of a lot of policies that just make it cheaper, easier to develop oil, gas, and coal on public lands than pretty much anywhere else in the U.S. So oil and gas developers in particular, coal as well, have a number of advantages in the way the system is designed to work uh, when it comes to leasing uh, for oil and gas or coal production on public lands. First and foremost, they have the first say in being able to nominate parcels. They, they can go in and tell the agency staff what they'd like to see put on the auction block. And the agency staff, uh, more by tradition than by law, feel that they have to honor that and tend to follow through and, and put those parcels up. Up until about a year and a half ago, the public could comment on those. Under the Trump administration, that opportunity to comment has been taken away. Once we get to the auction phase, especially now with uh, most auctions being held online, only the industry operators are in the room and participate in the auction. Uh, so there's very little opportunity for public scrutiny. 
And increasingly, there's very little data that's made available at the end of the auction by design, uh, as this administration has chosen to box the public out of many of these processes. Uh, but eventually, by regulation, a lot of that information does come to light. It just takes a little bit of time. Well, certainly based on your guys' efforts with some of the information you've been producing <laughs> and publishing on your on your website, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, we've we and others have been very frustrated by the accessibility of data that we're routinely made available. Journalists and others have had to turn to other means rather than waiting for the data to be published by the agency. And I think now that the House Natural Resources Committee is being led by a pro-conservation chairman, uh, we're going to see a lot more information being made public about how this business is being transacted. But the advantages that the companies have don't doesn't stop there. Once they gain access to a, a lease, there's very little money that they actually have to pay to hold on to that lease. The rental rates that they're charged are ridiculously low. The expectations for diligence, for, for them to go out and to do something on the land to show that they're working in furtherance of the lease are pretty minimal. And increasingly, operators are finding creative ways to suspend leases to take them off the books so that they don't have to pay any money and so that their 10-year lease life uh, doesn't decay, they can just kind of sit on them, put them in the freezer for a little while and come back to them later. Um, so there's some creative gaming of the system. But even for those operators that do want to move on to production, the royalty rates that are being charged right now are the same rates that were put into law in 1920. They're the lowest of any other government in the United States, every state that charges a royalty is higher than the federal government. Even the University of Texas school system that operates an oil and gas program charges a higher royalty rate than the federal government. So it's it's really cheap wow. to produce on public lands. And even that rate itself uh, has been further hollowed out by preferential treatments and loopholes that have been put into the accounting system that let oil and gas operators deduct against uh, the, the rates that they're supposed to pay, not, not unlike the way that our tax system is, is full of uh, opportunities um, for those that can afford to figure them out. So, you know, the system's put in a place. Operators very rarely have to post any sort of bonds to protect the public if they, uh, if they have a spill. Um, and can't afford to clean up or if they go bankrupt and have a lot of wells that haven't been reclaimed. Very little of those costs are covered by the bonds that the federal government requires um, operators to post. Those bond rates were set in the 1950s. And even states like Wyoming, not ever to be confused as anything other than a friend of the oil and gas industry, even they have higher bond rates because they realize that the public health and safety is is paramount. And they secure a lot more money from operators. So if, if you have an accidental spill or if you have a company go out of business, the taxpayer isn't left holding the bag to pay for cleanup. So there's a lot of these little pieces of the system that are um, really built in favor of the industry. And that's because over the years, those terms have largely been written by the industry. So you know, the system's rigged in favor of the oil and gas industries. A lot of the policies that had been put in place by the previous administrations did a lot to help the public gain at least an equal hand, but not the upper hand in making decisions about how to manage our, our public lands. And unfortunately, a lot of those policies were 
were wiped away in the early days of the Trump administration. So we're back to a legal system that was conceived of in the 1920s and put into place in the late 1980s that does treat, by definition, of this administration's energy dominance mantra, that does treat energy as, as the preferred user of our public lands. Some of you out there, like Luke and I, may be surprised by this history and the lack of progress and equity in our public land use policies. And you know, you may now be wondering, what has been the legacy of our energy production mantra? Well, as you may fear, your public lands have been a key contributor to our growing climate crisis. But with luck, they may also be part of the solution. Yeah, the oil, gas, and coal that comes off of our public lands and waters contributes more than uh, one-fifth of our total national greenhouse gas footprint, meaning public lands, if they were on their own country, they'd be the fifth largest emitter in the world. Our public lands are home, uh, or at least the source of a huge amount of the energy that we consume as a nation. In 2017, more than 40% of our coal came off public lands, more than 25% of the oil that is produced in the U.S. came out of public lands and waters, and uh, more than 10% of our natural gas. Our public lands have fueled the nation for more than a century, and there is uh, a renaissance under the current administration of interest in expanding that footprint. Um, some might argue the stranglehold that fossil energy extraction has on our public lands. The footprint of development is significant. More than 37 million acres are currently under lease, and a huge proportion of that is not even being used um, by oil and gas developers, more than half. But nevertheless, they have the rights of access, and uh, so the federal agencies can't manage those areas for recreation or habitat or other conservation purposes. So, you know, whenever the federal government leases out partial of public lands for energy development, that interest comes first. And uh, once that lease is out there, it crowds out other uses. And that's one of the reasons we're really concerned about uh, monitoring the footprint of what's under lease. But we're just as concerned about uh, keeping an eye on the footprint of what's available for lease. And more than 90% of those places on our public lands that are not already protected as a monument or as a national park are available for energy leasing. I like to think of it this way, the, where the Bureau of Land Management has a chance to make a decision about whether or not to lease for energy, nine out of 10 of those acres, they've chosen to leave open for energy leasing. And there seems to be, I think as you address too, it seems to be a push to offer more and more. I think a, a, one of the facts I picked up from some of your literature at the Wilderness Society is that in 2017, the current administration has now kind of offered up nearly 12 million acres of public loan lands for lease. And that's like Vermont and New Hampshire combined. And yet 
what's interesting, and I, I think Luke, this is something that you found interesting before, is it it seems like the developers they're offering to perhaps aren't taking them up on the offers quite so much. Um, it, it, am I speaking for you inappropriate, Luke, or is that was that something? No, that was that's interesting? That, yeah, that's one of the things that I had definitely seen is that. I think it was 12 million acres was the number that had been offered, but less than half of those were being actively worked on or, and that even maybe went for, for the leasing that has, was already in place as well. Yeah. I mean, this administration has cozied up almost out of desperation to the oil and gas industry because they've made no friends in pretty much every other sector. And the tail of the tape is just stark. Um, we put an analysis together mapping out all of the acres that this administration has turned from conservation and made available for future development. That alone is more than any other administration in, uh, in, in history. More than 35 million acres have been turned from places managed for conservation, places that have been protected, places your listeners know well, like Bears Ears National Monument, Grand Staircase National Monument. Um, but also uh, the Arctic Ocean, uh, which was withdrawn from future energy leasing by the Obama administration following a joint commitment with the Canadian government and following calls from the vast majority of Native people living in the coastal Arctic on the U.S. side. Um, but it also includes important protections for the iconic western bird, the greater sage-grouse, through plans that stretched across 11 states and it includes withdrawals from potential mining activity for a huge chunk of the California desert. As climate change ravages the hydrologic systems, uh, species are finding it harder and harder to adapt and need more and more room to roam to find water sources in the California desert. And these protections were critical for enabling local populations to uh, have a chance at adapting with climate change. All of those conservation protections were have been wiped away in the in the last 18 months. But the administration didn't just stop there. They pushed as hard as they can on the gas pedal and offered more land for oil and gas leasing than any other administration in history over that same period of time, more than 13.6 million acres. That's an area the size of Maryland and New Jersey combined. Um, when you get into eastern states, it's sort of hard to imagine, but suffice to say that that is a large tract of land. And given the soft markets for natural gas, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that the industry wasn't buying what they were selling. Uh, as Luke referenced, less than 15% of the acres that were put on the block actually received bids. Uh, so it's not clear who this administration is listening to when they're picking places, but it's very clear that the only opinion that they are responding to is the opinion of the oil and gas industry. Uh, because even during the shutdown, uh, when most government services are unavailable, uh, campgrounds, backcountry toilets, even some road access, and, and law enforcement and important inspections and enforcement activities in national parks and national wildlife refuges, the oil and gas industry is still getting full service. The head of the American Petroleum Institute, the oil and gas industry's largest lobby, said just a week ago that they felt no ill effects of the shutdown. And it shouldn't be surprising because this administration seems to be bending, if not breaking the law, to call its staff back to continue processing leases and preparing leases for sale in March, even while trash and human waste piles up along roadsides in our national parks. Where's the other player come in? I mean, can another party come in like 
Nature Conservancy, for instance, and decide that they want to put a bid in <laughs> to conserve an easement of public lands for recreation use or, uh, you know, scenery easement or whatnot. I, I just seems I, I'm still curious how we get to this almost closed marketplace for sale and or lease of public lands. So three points I'd react to. You know, the first is that the previous secretary, um, now exited uh, Secretary Ryan Zinke, was well known for his bravado, uh, riding a horse into the office the first day on the job, and a uh, trail of ethics concerns have followed his <laughs> So that, that, wasn't, that wasn't a requirement of the job? That's not... <laughs> no. That's no, not something not. antiquated <clears throat> left in the contract? Okay. <laughs> That's right. But uh, right. Uh, Secretary Zinke, or former Secretary Zinke, had a zeal for the biggest and the best. And his first year in office, it's hard to find a press release that his office issued that didn't hail one action or another as being the first or the biggest or the largest or the most. And that mantra, I think, to some extent, attempting to appease his boss, uh, President Trump, was uh, a major driving force in the irrational selection of acreage that this administration rushed out the door during his tenure. And there are a number of policies that were changed that we're going to have to live with that mean even now that he's gone, uh, we're still going to face a lot of pressures for leasing in the future. But there was a huge rush uh, under the, the mantra of energy dominance to reverse course. And this administration followed through on that mission. Uh, as I said, they stripped protections from a huge amount of conservation acres. They offered more acres for oil and gas lease onshore and offshore than any other administration in history. But uh, just as troubling, and this gets to the second point, they have made available even more acres than uh, were in place on the table open for development than when they when they came into town. And that means that they've set the stage for further controversy and potential for more shenanigans as we move forward. So, you know, the second thing that I think was really driving the administration was reasserting that energy is the primary use of public lands and that conservation and all other uses, they're maybe important for a, a line in a, in a press release or a tweet. Uh, here or there, but it's really not the reason why our public lands exist. In the in the eyes of this administration, it seems clear to me that the purpose of our public lands is to support and further the aims of uh, domestic fossil energy production. And most of your listeners will hopefully be aghast at that proposition, but that certainly is the way things are being managed right now. Um, but the third the third reason that I think it's somewhat challenging to make heads or tails out of this. They they offered so much and so little was purchased. It has to do with, with who in industry is actually pushing for action. And you know, the oil and gas industry is a very large industry, much like any community. It certainly isn't monolithic. And what we found is that from our view and what we've seen, uh, the industry calls to action that are being listened to are not coming from major players that have more responsible track records. It's coming from independent operators and mid-major operators that are really operating at the margins. And they're seeing an opportunity right now with low prices and incredibly low access costs to obtain these mineral rights from the federal government, from really from you and me, since it isn't the federal government that owns them, it's taxpayers. They're seeing a great opportunity to buy low. And speculation is rife right now. 
Um, so part of why you're seeing so much acreage being offered isn't just that the administration is pushing the pedal to the metal, but that's a large piece of it. It's that the industry is putting a lot of requests in for acreage, many acres that make absolutely no sense, but are likely speculative plays that operators are uh, taking a, a flyer on, buy cheap, wait and see what the market does, or worst case, if somebody wants to put a conservation protection in a place, they're going to have to come back to me at some point, and maybe there's some money in it there. It's, uh, it's The system's broken, and it isn't serving the interests of the American people. Uh, it frankly isn't even serving the interests of the oil and gas industry right now, and that's one of the cruelest ironies of the circumstance. The leader of the trade association that represents a lot of those independent and mid-major operators, the Western Energy Alliance, has been quoted repeatedly as saying, uh, even she's not sure where some of these acres that are being put forward for a lease are coming from. Um, and particularly in states like Nevada, where we've seen more than uh, 300,000 acres proposed for leasing. And to my knowledge, as of last week, I believe there were only three oil and gas drill rigs operating in that state. Hmm. So the the actual oil and gas industry, to a lot of extent, doesn't even know what's being done with this land or what they could do with this land. I mean, as far as the argument of some sort of energy independence or dominance, it's not really necessary to have all these extra tracts of lands offered? Am I am I tracking that correctly? It depends on what you mean by energy dominance. The administration's definition appears to be ideological, and it appears to be driven by the mantra of Trump himself that government should just get out of the way. And in this case, it means quite literally turning the keys over to our public lands, to fossil energy industry. And that ideological approach means uh, it's up to the industry to sort out how these lands should be managed. Um, and it, and the, the markets will find a way to correct. But the system's so broken, there's very little that's free in the marketplace for oil and gas development on public lands. Because for more than a century, the industry has carved out loopholes and special considerations and uh, all these little aspects of the program that are purpose-built for their benefit. A good example, your listeners would probably be surprised to know, as I just mentioned, that the majority of lands that are leased are lands that the industry itself offers. Uh, they, they nominate, right? They can go into a website, uh, which, don't worry, even during the shutdown is still open, even though you cannot submit a FOIA if you're a member of the public right now. But if I'm an oil and gas operator, I can go online and I can say that I want to bid on tracks X through Y. And the Bureau of Land Management isn't legally obligated to process those nominations, but culturally they're bound, hidebound, particularly under the policies of this administration to follow the signals that the industry is giving them. So they'll take those nominations and they'll prepare them and dutifully offer them. And if I'm an irresponsible operator and I'm looking to game the system, there are no checks or balances in place. And the few that were in place, this administration has ripped out of the system in their 18 months or 20 months in office. I feel like this, looking at this mismatch of management where we have an administration that seems hell-bent on removing any impediment to future growth or any common sense regulation for that matter. And on the other side of that, we see public opinion in defense of conserving wild places. In the middle, you see the oil and gas industry, who even themselves seem to be a bit shy of what's happening right now, 
as the administration's open all these doors. And the question, you know, I, I feel this frustration of having my hands tied, not being able to crack this broken system. And I, I wonder from your perspective, is there anything that we can do? I mean, what can what what action needs to be taken to fix this? Well, you're right to be out outraged under no article of the Constitution nor any law that I've read should the oil and gas industry have such special treatment that effectively excludes the very owners of the resource from being able to ensure that the federal government is appropriately stewarding the things that you and I own. And that's what we're seeing right now, uh, plain as day or dark as night, quite frankly, because it's it's happening out of the public's eye and the administration is finding ways to make it harder and harder to keep an eye on the activities it's undertaking in the name of the fossil energy industry. And the shutdown is a perfect opportunity for them to operate with little or no public scrutiny and no public involvement, which is a tragic shame for Native American nations that have the right to government-to-government -to -government consultation for county commissioners and municipal leaders that should be consulted about operations that are occurring that are going to directly impact their citizens and, and their constituents. And certainly stakeholders like uh, recreation users, after recreation outfitters and guides, uh, folks that make their livelihood or heal themselves and uh, build their own strength in, in our public lands. We do not have a seat at the table right now. And in fact, uh, we're not even in the room uh, as long as the government shut down. So what can we do? Well, it's, uh, it's a good question. And the answers change on a regular basis, but the overarching thing that anybody that cares about taking back management of their public lands uh, should be doing is looking for opportunities to make their voice heard. Now, I know that probably sounds a little ironic because I just said that there are a lot of processes that are occurring uh, where the, the public does not have uh, a chance to make a difference. And the lease sale process is one of those that's very, very difficult to participate in. But there are a number of processes that are open right now for the public to participate in. And that's where we should all be spending uh, what limited time we have for advocacy, putting a comment in and making sure that the government knows, uh, that the Interior Department knows that they need to be doing a better job on behalf of all Americans. Do you foresee opportunities due to market forces perhaps developing for more socially responsible and also climate stewardship with energy management or energy development on public lands, i.e. solar or wind, uh, and have those market forces started to come into play? There's huge opportunities for wind and solar energy development on our public lands. And that means starting to say no to projects in places like the coastal plain of the refuge for climate reasons and other reasons. But it also means figuring out a smart way to unwind fossil energy from the systems that are, are built to perpetuate it. It means that we've got to remove subsidies for oil, gas, and coal uh, that continue to allow them to be developed and sold below market cost. It means that we've got to ensure fossil energy developers are paying for the climate damage that they're inflicting on current and future generations. And it means that we've got to come up with an orderly way to get out of the business of fossil energy production on our public lands by mid-century or later. Yeah. And Luke, you had a kind of a poignant comment in this regard while we were in our offline moment there. <laughs> the question was, you know, if the BLM is, is one of the 
largest energy providers in the U.S., then why doesn't it have a more diverse portfolio? I mean, from a company standpoint or business standpoint, it's so fossil fuel heavy. You mentioned 3%. And to go along with that, how, how can we as public landowners demand that that portfolio change? Well, one of the first best ways is to ensure that the places where you live uh, and where you work are committed to purchasing renewable power. The demand for renewable energy is what has prompted uh, so many companies to turn to public lands in the West as a place to site their projects. Um, even during this administration, we've seen a number of projects permitted, albeit very quietly, in Nevada. And there's an active effort underway right now in southern Nevada to identify additional zones for solar energy development. But I suspect that we're going to see some legislative activity this year that's going to look at putting new incentives out there for renewable energy on public lands. So I'd, I'd say stay tuned for some of that legislation to get introduced because Congress has never really spoken to how wind and solar should be developed on public lands. And as a result, uh, we have that lopsided energy portfolio you're talking about. Cool. I'm looking forward to seeing that change, hopefully. As our conversation continues, Chase expands on a key and long-standing case study in the battle between energy development and natural heritage. Let's head north to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. You can rely on me all the time. Since I started working in conservation, the Arctic Refuge has been managed as a sacred place and symbolically treated as perhaps the most important fight over determining who has uh, precedent. And if the oil and gas industry can drill in the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, where is inappropriate for them to be drilling? Um, because there is no reason that I've read that suggests the coastal plain is appropriate for development. From a conservation perspective, it is a critically important, world-class, one-of-a-kind ecosystem that is essential for the largest migratory caribou herd in the world. For calving and rearing, the coastal plain is an essential habitat that's becoming even more critical as climate change uh, stresses the food availability for, for the caribou. Um, but it's more than just that. It's prime denning habitat for polar bear. It's got unique vegetative structures that are found in very few other places in the world. And it's a critically important estuarine system for uh, a number of anadromous fish. But the conservation aside, from a human rights perspective, because it's so important for the caribou, it has long been viewed as an essential sacred place for the Gwich'in people, uh, native Alaskans that have for centuries relied on the porcupine caribou uh, and therefore on the coastal plain of the refuge for the majority of the calories. And that's still true for the Gwich'in Nation, a people that want to have the opportunity to continue their largely subsistence-based lifestyle. 
And by every stretch of the imagination, they should be able to have that opportunity if that's what they want, which is why the coastal plain of the refuge is so important and so inappropriate for oil and gas development. But as we continue to be reminded day in and day out that climate change is upon us, it's moving faster and faster than scientists thought even five years ago, we have to begin to say no to proposed fossil energy development for the sake of the climate, not just the sake of the land and the wildlife. And what better place to start drawing that hard line than the coastal plain of the Arctic Refuge? The Interior Department has a comment period open right now where the public have three more weeks, we think. We're not sure because the shutdown may or may not force them to extend the period. But the public were given 52 days to comment, and that 52-day comment period ends in three weeks. Uh, And I'd urge your listeners to visit our website or uh, to visit protectourarctic.org or to visit uh, wilderness.org, and you'll find links to take action to tell the Interior Department and the Fish and Wildlife Service that drilling is simply inappropriate for this remarkable place. That fight's been going on for quite some time, though, too, Chase, right? I mean, we're not just talking about the last year. I mean, we're talking, has it been almost a decade? Is it even longer? We are closer to seeing uh, drill bits bite into the permafrost than we have been in almost 40 years. The fight over the coastal plain of the Arctic Refuge goes back 60 or 70 years. And there was a near deal reached in the late 70s, which set aside the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Um, But it left this one area, this coastal plain, the so-called 1002 area, available for potential development to be figured out through an administrative process. And that open-ended question has been fought long and hard uh, since that law was established. We thought that a clear resolution had been reached when Secretary Jewell, President Obama's last interior secretary, made a recommendation to the U.S. Congress after finishing uh, a multi-year study that said that the 1002 area of the coastal plain was inappropriate for development and should be managed not just for conservation, it should be managed as wilderness. It's up to Congress to enact uh, wilderness legislation. So it then was passed back to Congress. But uh, this administration, when they came in, withdrew that recommendation and effectively gutted that analysis. Uh, Congress then acted and compelled the administration to hold the lease sale within three years, uh, within four years, three years from now. And that's what they're moving for right now. So you're right. This is a, this has been a, a long chess match that in light of the oil and gas markets and their appetite for risky plays and the heightened sensitivity that many operators have to public, public action and reputational damage from uh, taking an action that makes no sense from a climate perspective or from a human rights perspective, it leaves you wondering who's actually going to have an interest in developing up there. But nevertheless, the Interior Department is trudging ahead at breakneck speed in an effort to win this largely ideological battle. Um, This symbol is a really important one, uh, and it's one that we should not let uh, we should not let the industry win um, for conservation reasons, for human rights reasons and for the sake of the climate. Yeah. So you said you, you, you have a hard time imagining who would actually buy in there. And is that because you think there's so much negative social capital beyond this behind this issue at this point that it would be not an attractive purchase so to speak that's right the risk associated with proceeding to development in a place like the arctic refuge can't be very attractive for most investors that's one reason we saw barclays one of the largest lending banks for oil and gas exploration in the world 
make a public statement just last week that it was no longer intended to be funding Arctic exploration, particularly in the coastal plain, with a new uh, diligence policy that it announced publicly on Wednesday. And thanks to the amazing advocacy of the Gwich'in people, a number of other banks, investors, and lending institutions have been contacted uh, and have been put on notice that there will be a long and drawn out fight over this place uh, because it's the very lifeblood of the Gwich'in people. At the Wilderness Society, we stand with the Gwich'in and we want to do everything we can to protect the coastal plain. I have to think when rational investors look at the state of play, it can't be a very attractive investment right now for the reasons you outlined, reputational damage. Um, but frankly, the economics don't work out either. We've known for a long time it's going to take more than 10 years, even if there is oil found in the coastal plain, and that's an open question, but it's going to take more than 10 years to bring oil online. Uh, meanwhile, oil and gas operators like ConocoPhillips and Hillcorp are announcing major fines in the Western Arctic, so to the west of where oil and gas activity is already occurring in areas that are not nearly as sensitive and have been reviewed and found to be generally acceptable for oil and gas development in many cases. There are many other cheaper, better options, even in the Arctic, but globally, there's much cheaper oil to be found out there, much less risky oil. Going and investing in projects in the Arctic Refuge doesn't seem like it makes good sense uh, if the decision Barclays ma made is, uh, is the one that I think a lot of others are privately uh, expecting that they're going to make too. That was an excellent segue because you just, I guess, early last week, you'd sent me the link to that documentary about the Gwich'in people. Actually, I think it was produced by Patagonia in part, essentially uh, outlining a bit of the historical precedent, but also the grassroots effort to conserve, as as you said, the is it the ten ten o two in northern Alaska? Is that correct? Where the Gwich'in are living? Yeah, the Gwich'in are scattered across nine villages in the U.S. and Canada. Gwich'in do not set foot in the coastal plain. Uh, that's a sacred space. That's where the the caribou that they rely on calve. But they are practically connected to it with every fiber of their being. More than eighty percent of the calorie intake of the Gwich'in come from those caribou. And those caribou need that coastal plain for survival. And to cycle back kind of to, to Luke's point or question or, or plea as far as how do we get in way of this, what seems like closed or fixed system? I mean, would you look at this prolonged battle in some ways to be a success of the Gwich'in people? I mean, at least that they've been able to to hold off the tide for all these decades. And, is, and would you attribute to their grassroots efforts that, that success or that delay and and having that region of the US being turned over to gas, you know, exploration and Yeah, this is one of the biggest challenges in conservation. I think Dave Brower summed it up best when he said success is temporary, uh, but failure is forever. Nevertheless, conservation is one of the most optimistic enterprises out there. You have to be optimistic or else uh, you would look at what we've talked about today and say, why even bother? Um but we should bother because if we don't, no one will. And the oil and gas industry will have free reign over places like the coastal plain and all the places that are special for uh, hunters and anglers and snowboarders and skiers that are out there. We are at an important point in this nation, and we are starting a, a national conversation about our public lands, this reawakening of pride 
in keeping public lands public is just the beginning of what I believe to be a reimagining of the role our public lands will play for our nation and for the native people who were here long before us, for whose lands were we are now managing, uh, hopefully with their input and their assistance, if not on their behalf. So now is a time more than ever to step up and step into these conversations, into what feels like impossible odds, because this administration is going to come and go, and they are going to do some damage to the policies that were pushing our public lands to be managed in a more thoughtful way. They've already done tremendous damage to uh, policies that required uh, thoughtful consultation uh, and, moreover, actual engagement and strategic partnerships with Native people like the Gwich'in uh, so that the federal government is is acting as a partner rather than as a property owner with utter disregard for uh, the interests of the people that we've dispossessed of these places. And maybe more importantly, that the public lands are just not needed for energy development in the same way that they were 100 years ago when many of the laws that still govern the way we develop energy on our public lands were first written. They've since been updated, but very little since the Mineral Leasing Act of 1920. So as we come up on the 100th anniversary of, of some laws that say energy should be first, it's important to remember that for the 100 years since, we've been putting in place laws and policies that have said, well, actually, uh, there are other important uses out there like recreation. We cannot let up now just because this administration wants to turn the clock back 60, 80, 100 years. And they will have their day. Uh, they are changing policy. But those policies are so out of touch with what the American people want to see. And frankly, what many who work for these agencies understand to be proper and prudent. And I think if you catch some of the more responsible energy operators on a uh, in a private conversation, they'll realize that they're the very social license for energy operations to continue on public lands is at risk because of the um, at-any-cost approach of this administration. Uh, seeking to put energy first in every instance where they have had the choice. So working together uh, in places like the coastal plain of the Arctic Refuge, we can begin to draw a line and we can say no, hell no, not here, not now, and not ever. And that kind of uh, groundswell, that grassroots activism, we need to see, we need to focus in the same ways that many of your listeners have come together with sportsmen and others around efforts to sell off our public lands. We need to be just as vigilant about this administration's active efforts to sell out our public lands to fossil energy interests. Both Luke and I appreciated Chase's spirited words, but admittedly, it was hard for us to reconcile with the gnawing pain still left in our guts from a recent loss in the public lands preservation fight. We asked Chase to highlight the silver lining on the cloud, which was left behind after the fight for Bear's Ears and the Grand Staircase Escalante.
guess what that brings up, and as far as recent recent efforts, I, I can't ignore the impact, and perhaps it's just a recency bias of watching how the Bears Ears campaign played out. And I, I, I'm sure, Luke, you you have some personal feelings about that, and and probably have. I mean, I, this is this is where we feel a little hopeless after a battle like that, and the public commentary behind that, and and. I don't know, maybe you can speak for yourself because I don't want to speak to your emotions, but I mean, how did that that fight leave you feeling about our system of management with public lands? Uh, you know, I, I, you nailed it. I think that crushed would be a word that comes to mind on how I felt with, I mean, all the work that went into it, the amount of public engagement that occurred. I found a lot of hope in that as the groundswell built about, around Bears Ears and then as the administration seemingly ignored that was um, took a lot of wind out of a lot of people's sails, and and that's what I thought. As you mentioned, you know, well, there's public comment on the the drilling on the coastal plain right now, and the first thing that comes across my mind is, well, what what difference is that going to make? Um, but as 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 you've kind of talked it through, and I've been able to kind of process a little bit more, I think you know maybe it's the optimist in me that helps me be involved in the conservation, but um, that social capital which maybe wasn't acknowledged as much by the administration itself, I think is what our biggest lever is right now as a community. Despite what the administration chooses to do, if we can make this such a toxic thing for any group to touch, then maybe we can, can have the protections accomplished in a different way. Exactly. Exactly. And I guess I brought it up, Chase, is perhaps maybe it's, it'd be insightful to get your insight or your opinion on a little bit of a compare and contrast of why the Gwich'in have been able to hold off uh, oil interests for decades, whereas uh, overwhelmingly public opinion for Utahns in regards to uh, what they wanted to see done with, with management of uh, the Bears Ears monument. Uh, seem to fall on deaf ears. And is that at a fault of the people? Is that just poor timing with our current administration and overwhelming odds in, in the face of their objectives? I, I think it probably merits contrasting that fight and that loss in some effort to to <laughs> give us a little hope <laughs> uh, that we're doing the right thing here. When I wake up and come into work every day, I'm greeted by two things. I have a sign right next to my door as I walk in that reminds me that there are dozens of places in this country, including Bears Ears National Monument, that are simply too wild to drill. And as I walk in the door, I have a number of images of landscapes that I've been proud to work and work as, as closely as I have been able to with Native nations in support of their effort to protect uh, sacred places, not just wild places, but places that are essential uh, to their culture, including Bears Ears, but uh, also the Badger Two Medicine in the Lewis and Clark National Forest of Montana, Greater Chaco Canyon area in New Mexico, and of course, the coastal plain of the Arctic Refuge. Those images greet me every day when I walk in, and they remind me that just because the administration took a decision that 3.5 million Americans strongly disagreed with doesn't mean that it's done. There are a number of court cases that are still rattling around on Bears Ears, and we're still pretty confident that the administration's interpretation of the law is faulty. Uh, but if nothing else, as Luke said, 
three and a half million Americans rising up and telling the administration and everyone who was watching that this is not how our public land should be managed is catching other people's eyes, the eyes of the very industries that this administration is attempting to crack open these protections for. So every time you sign a comment letter, remember it, it isn't just federal agency official who's going to be taking a look at it. It's going to be oil and gas executives. It's going to be shareholders and board members for coal and oil companies. It's going to be socially responsible investment advisors that are uh, advising on risk management strategies for some of the largest lending institutions in the world. They are all paying very careful attention to a clear signal that the American public is sending to everyone who will pay attention right now. And that's that there is simply a higher standard of care for how our public lands should be managed. This is not 1870. And these lands are not for disposal by the federal government anymore. These are public lands lands that have rich history, rich heritage, tremendously rich ecological and other values, and are increasingly being woven into the economies of the West in ways that have nothing to do with mineral extraction. They have everything to do with outdoor recreation, with amenity retirees that want to live near protected places, remote tech workers that don't have to be saddled to a desk in Silicon Valley anymore. The world is changing very quickly. And the folks that really matter at the end of the day are, are going to be you and me because we're the owners of these places. And if we don't stand up and let our voices be known for how we want them to be managed, then it's going to be kind of hard for us to complain about the decisions that get taken if we sit on the sidelines and watch as the fossil energy industry reclaims a tremendous amount of ground and power in uh, decisions about how our public lands are going to be managed. This is a critically important time to fight, and we cannot win if we don't step into the fight. Chase, I have a question for you directly related to that. From what you have seen from like a, a best practices standpoint, is it more important to have more signatures or more thoughtful comments in those comments that are made? Both are important, but it seems that the uh, total number right now is probably the more important factor. Because as you said, it isn't clear that the thoughtfully composed, unique comments that get submitted are given the, the attention that they should be due. However, the important caveat is those thoughtful individual comments that are submitted become very, very important factors in court cases. So the answer to your question is kind of it depends on in which context. Both are very important. But from an advocacy perspective, these days, we're certainly looking at keeping up uh, the total number. And we're well aware of the fact that energies are flagging, that continuing to hit send on emails or to sign petitions, uh, in many cases, to even attend public rallies and marches, can feel futile at times. And I just want to reassure everyone that every one of those efforts and actions that's taken does make a difference, but it's, it's very understandable that you look at the administration's direction and you see that very little change, if any, has uh, been affected by those comments. Uh, the main point I have to say is just yet. It has yet to make a difference and it will make a difference. And I think now that the White House doesn't have a, an anti-conservation controlled House and an anti-conservation controlled Senate to cover their flanks anymore. 
uh, we're going to see a lot more interest uh, and a lot more action being taken where the public stands up and says, this isn't right. Uh, we've already seen a blizzard of letters fly from a pro-conservation controlled House of Representatives, uh, especially the House Natural Resources Committee and the newly instilled Chairman Grijalva. Just last week, in fact, two letters went up asking questions about how the federal government can be proceeding to recall federal agency staff and compel them to work without pay to process oil and gas permits when they can't even ensure the health and safety of visitors um, to our nation's parks. Where does the prioritization come from? So the comments that are being submitted right now have a lot of audiences, not just those uh, at Interior um, that, are, that are reviewing them. And I'm heartened to see that that change has already given us strong new pro-conservation leadership in the House and where there are large numbers of the public commenting on ridiculous actions, you can rest assured that the, the House Natural Resources Committee and, and others that want to see public lands managed in a balanced way are going to pay attention. Do you see any other opportunities on the horizon uh, just in light of some of those recent tide changes, Chase? Or do you feel like, I know you'd mentioned to me before that you know business seems like uh, are becoming a bigger and bigger player. I think our, our training is to think about calling your legislator, you know, leaving a phone message or obviously talking to the BLM or the Department of the Interior. But it seems like perhaps more and more it's the businesses that will start listening to our voices more and more, not only for this kind of concept of negative social capital that we addressed before, but perhaps there may be some opportunities that, that are more socially conscientious or more aligned with what the populace is interested in. And is that, do you see that as a, as a major lever developing into the future? And, and that is why we should continue to, to chime in with our comments because they're going to be looking at the, the gross numbers. Investors and businesses are inherently risk averse. They'll take a chance when it looks like it can benefit them. But if they see nothing but downside risk, be it material risk to their assets, uh, which many are seeing from uh, climate change that's coming, if they see reputational risk from their actions, which many see in stepping into proposed drilling activities in sacred spaces, they'll stand up and take notice and the practices may change. So we think that the, the growing awareness of the risk associated with doing business, particularly dirty business like energy extraction on public lands is better being understood by the marketplace mm -hmm. as uh, the, the markets are becoming more aware of just how fickle consumers are and how aware consumers are of uh, corporate actions. I'll take an example of just uh, Bears Ears. So there has yet to be any leasing activity proposed within the boundaries of the former Bears Ears National Monument. Uh, but in the uh, summer lease sale of last year, uh, there were some parcels that were sold within the boundaries of the monument that the tribes had proposed, which was a little bit bigger than what President Obama eventually created. And that followed sale of parcels that abutted, that ran right up next to the boundaries of the monument that President Obama created. The companies that purchased those leases were clearly so scared of public scrutiny that they have completely covered their tracks. And the best efforts that we and partners have taken 
to understand who has the controlling interest in those leases has not turned up any fruit yet. But to me, that's a good sign. It means that whoever bought those leases knows that they're not doing the right thing mm-hmm. and they do not want to be pulled into the public's crosshairs and subject to, to ridicule. Uh, the leases that were offered within the boundaries of the tribal proposed area drew a tremendous amount of heat during the leasing process. Even though there was no formal process for offering public comment, it didn't stop members of the public from telling Utah BLM that it was wholly inappropriate to be offering those parcels. And I believe less than half of those parcels actually sold. Hmm. So the more engagement that there is, the more hard the edge is that we can make these decisions. Uh, I think the more clear investors, businesses, and frankly, the agencies will see that the public whose lands and resources these are have a very strong sense of how these lands should be managed. Mm. And let's face it, it shouldn't be a shock. Stakeholder as shareholder engagement has become a tremendously effective form of advocacy for social justice issues, for climate issues. It's about time that public lands conservation finds its seat at that table and begins to make very clear why operating on public lands is very different than operating anywhere else, that things need to be done in the right places, at the right pace, and with sustainable practices. And if those tests aren't met, that activity should not be occurring on public lands at all. And whoever chooses to pursue it is going to be met at every turn with opposition. So this is the time through comment and through direct engagement. Um, And that's why I said uh, early on that there are opportunities that continue to crop up. Uh, So for your listeners, perhaps the best approach to keeping an ear to the ground is to stay tuned to this podcast, but to also keep an eye out for email solicitations, find an environmental group or a conservation group that you are aligned with or a a climate advocacy group like Protect Our Winners and keep an eye on the appeals that get put out. All of us need engagement. The advocacy community needs to see all of us step up and take back control of our public lands. I'm going to ask you a quick question, Chase, as a follow-up at at, at risk of perhaps enraging Luke further, but... uh, (laughs) (laughs) As a result of the shrinking of bear's ears, I guess you use this as a case study, uh, shrinking the, the the border margin of bear's ears monument, that land that then uh, lost that protection, is it being used for anything as far as you know at this point? Or is it essentially locked up waiting on speculation perhaps for something in the future, but no longer is in the purview of natural resource preservation or even cultural preservation for United States citizenry at this point. So those lands that were stripped from both Grand Staircase and Bears Ears National Monument, to the best of my knowledge, are sitting and waiting for the agency to determine what it plans to do with them. The community kept a very careful eye, particularly on Grand Staircase, after when the public was first able to go stake out mining claims. And fortunately, there was not a major rush, but conservation groups are remaining vigilant, keeping an eye out for speculative claims that are being uh, made, whether in the mining space or in the oil and gas space. And uh, it's only a matter of time before some proposals come forward, because these lands are no longer being managed for conservation purposes. The one big risk that anyone who's paying attention to the circumstance knows well is that there are a number of court cases pending action. And the courts will ultimately determine how appropriate the administration's decision was. And it's our hope 
that claims that we've brought along with many others will be favorably received by the courts and the American public will have those conservation protections restored. When it's found, we hope that uh, the administration's actions were uh, against uh, contrary with the law. Yeah. So again, it's an opportunity for us to dissuade our opponents, so to speak, through through public commentary. It's just the fact that the border was shrunk doesn't mean that all is lost. Certainly, trying to make an investment in that negative social capital for these companies that may be looking to utilize that resource may actually be an appropriate and effective impediment. That's right. And I can give you another example, too. I mean, we, we have seen some wins in the last year and a half. And admittedly, the bar for a win has been lowered a bit. But there are many parcels that have been put forward for oil and gas leasing that have been deferred. Now, that doesn't mean that they're protected now, but it does mean that they were not offered and sold at auction. And this includes areas uh, around Zion National Park, around Great Sand Dunes National Park, around Chaco Canyon National Historic Park. It also includes areas up near Upper Missouri River Breaks, outside of Livingston, Montana. There are a host of places where the administration's agenda has run into significant opposition, much of it bubbling up locally. And through not just pressure from the American public, but pressure from lawmakers, the administration, Secretary Zinke at that time, chose the more prudent course, which was to not attempt to sell those places. Of course, we would love to see them protected. But at this point, a stay of execution is a step in the right direction. So, you know, as your listeners feel frustrated with the amount of disregard that the administration is showing their public comments, it is a great time to call their lawmakers, particularly their senators, and let them know that they don't believe that the administration, particularly the Interior Department and the Bureau of Land Management, are managing their lands, our public lands, in the public's interest. Luke, you still on here? I am. What do you think? Awesome. <laughs> you inspi- Dude, just, inspired or are you depressed? Oh my gosh. <laughs> a little bit of both. I mean, I took just like six pages of notes during that, just scribbling out ideas and amazing. And I feel like Chase was able to uh, both provide crushing information and a little bit of hope. <laughs> so I'm, 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 feeling, I'm feeling better at the end of it. Yeah. I mean, what what do you think the one, if there is kind of a key pearl that you would take home to your peers and your colleagues? You know, I think that for me, the most important takeaway from this conversation is is the real importance of public comment. Maybe I had written that off after Bears Years as a useful tool, but as we've gained a little bit more understanding about it, I feel like pulling on that lever as hard as I possibly can and encouraging other people to do so is going to be useful as we move forward. What was kind of the message, a a hope that you got out of that from him? I think the biggest hope was that was the the idea of taking ownership, you know, that they are our public lands. And if we can help the public, you know, our community understand 
that they're in the energy business, right? Like <laughs> that, that we need to take a better control of the energy business that are on our public lands and, and make our voice heard regarding that, that there's actually a lot of space for positive change. Um, I mean, just the, the numbers that he, that he and the Wilderness Society have produced about the amount of energy that is produced and the negative impacts of that on our public lands how great of an opportunity is it for us to be able to capture that and make change to it? Um, but but the first step is is making people aware of uh, of what's happening on those lands. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts? Yeah, I, I really like the fact that Chase kind of framed this as as this is the challenge that's facing us, and it, it just made me think of like the community of people that are probably listening to this podcast are people who go outside for a challenge. Uh, and what better group of people is there to face a tough challenge than the outdoor community? And I think that um, what I hope people would take away from this is it's time to accept this challenge and to roll up our sleeves and, and get to work and, and support, you know, groups like the Wilderness Society to help influence change. Um, it, we, we, we love being outside and if we want to keep being outside for our lives and for the future generations, we got to get to work. Well, thanks again to Luke and Chase for all their time. I will begrudgingly admit that due to a technical snafu, we had to record that conversation twice. I was remarkably embarrassed by the ordeal, but without hesitation, these two stepped right back up to the mic with their limited time. I believe that's a living testament to their character and commitment. So, thanks, fellas. Thanks again to the Wilderness Society for their support. Please go to wilderness.org to learn more. And if you want to support the mission of this podcast, well, please consider leaving a donation for them for their impactful work. If you want a very deeper dive read on this topic, check out their document called In the Dark, The Hidden Climate Impacts of Energy Development on Public Lands. All right. Thanks to Evan Phillips for helping with the production of this episode. Check out his amazing podcast, The Fern Line, about climbing in the great ranges of Alaska. And thanks to all of you for coming back and listening to episode 17. We hope you've been with us from the beginning, but if not, check out our other episodes on our site, on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or SoundCloud. If this or prior episodes sparked conversation or inspired you on your next adventure project, please let us know. You know, the best way to support this podcast is to tell a friend or two give us a good review, click some stars our way, or best yet, share with some of your friends. Your show of support, as always, means so much. Thanks all, and keep adventuring. Keep adventuring.